0: I may be passionate about money, but that doesn't mean that I'm passionate enough to be a CFO. (laughs) right. Right. And I think that is the fundamental challenge is that this work is not seen as a professional practice. It's seen as an add on, it's seen as a do this on top of some other role.
1: Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. While diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging weren't foreign concepts in the business world before the summer protest of 2020, They certainly gained a lot of attention and renewed commitment or at least a lot of performative lip service after George Floyd's death on May 25th of 2020. As the economy slows down and after some high profile corporate missteps in this area, some organizations are beginning to rethink their approaches to DEIB. Joining me today to discuss the state of DEIB in 2024 is Shani Delamore Barracks. Shani is the principal of Aurora Change Agency, a consulting firm partnering with organizations to create intentionally inclusive and humane cultures of belonging characterized by psychological safety, self-inquiry, and the freedom to innovate. Shani's career has included a stint as an Assistant Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at the University of North Texas and similar roles in education and for-profit organizations. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Shanny.
0: Hello there, Mike. Happy Monday.
1: To you as well. And this is dropping on Thursday. So happy Thursday, PR okay. listeners. Happy
0: Thursday. That'll be Friday Eve to the listeners oh, by then, yeah.
1: right? There you go. So we've, you and I have talked about the yeah, – and I need to give a shout out to uh, Maria uh, Gavrilova Aguiar at the University of North Texas People Center for connecting us uh, originally. She, Maria's, uh, a good friend and always gives me some really good recommendations for uh, guests for the podcast. So, a uh, uh, shout out to her. Hey, Maria. Thanks. But yeah. And so, we're, you know, just, you know, pull back the curtains. Like I said, this is a Monday and this is uh, a Monday in December. We're dropping this episode the second week of January. So, things may have changed, listeners, as we talk about stuff, but I um, uh, hope everybody had a great holiday season. But so, we're going to talk about, you know, talk about diversity. And you and I had a conversation uh, a while back around diversity, and and it went on and on. And so this may be a long podcast. I uh, hope you've got a long drive ahead of you, listeners. But let's just start with because everybody's got different key components when they they talk about the definitions here. When you're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, which is a more recent. Right. Thing. I think it's something we've always wanted as part of it, but we've spiked it out as its own term in the last few years uh, more frequently. What, what How do you define those terms? What does that look like in, in a corporate setting?
0: Sure, and, and I'll say corporate and just any setting, right? Okay, um, yeah,
1: that's fair. You know,
0: because they, they've all got broad applications. And I want to talk about the addition of belonging because that's really the end goal of all of this, right? Is to create cultures of belonging, where people feel like they're not having to manage their identities for other people's comfort, right? And so diversity, those are the identities that people have uh, that are intersecting identities, meaning that all of us are a number of different things, right? I think 20th century, when we heard diversity, we would think maybe just race and gender. Uh, obviously, now we know that the definition of diversity has expanded beyond race and gender. You know, and gender has now become gender identity to be more inclusive, uh, to sexual identity and orientation, to veteran status, to disability, all of those things. So, so diversity is really just all of those identities that could bring some value to a place and space, right? Inclusion, I think inclusion came on the scene shortly after diversity, because inclusion, those are the efforts that are made to create climates and cultures of belonging for those identities of diversity. And and I want to mention, you know, when people say, uh, when people refer to folks as diverse, and I'm doing air quotes, um, You know, that always makes me giggle because, first of all, we're all diverse (laughs) because we all have multiple identities. And and I think the other thing, and this is also very important, um, part of the reason that there's been such pushback related to diversity, I think, is because historically diversity just meant members of historically underrepresented groups which meant that white men felt left out, right? So when I say diversity, I mean everybody. You know, everybody um, has those dimensions. And inclusion, those are the efforts to create belonging, right? We are trying to achieve belonging through inclusion. Um, now, equity, those are the specific actions that people must take to achieve inclusion, and belonging, in in my um, estimation. And when I talk about equity, I often talk about it through the lens of the four P's, policies, programs, practices, and people. So if you're trying to achieve inclusion and belonging, then the path through which to do that is through equity, looking at uh, policies, programs, practices, and those things that affect people to ensure that they are equitable and fair. And fair is not always equal. And that's, I think, where people get in their feels, if you will, um, and why there's such pushback to the notion of equity. Because equity often means redistributing resources and putting them to the places and spaces and people where they are more needed. And so when there is a sense of entitlement that it all belongs to me. And why are you giving it away to other people? Which is, I think, what I've seen in my 20-some odd years of doing this, where a lot of this pushback pushback comes. It's often because, and I know we'll talk about this, the work hasn't been done on the front end to context these discussions so people understand why equity is needed, right? So mm-hmm. that people when they see these instances of inequity, can put them in context. So all of those efforts together, if they are done in a way that is substantive and not performative, right, should lead to um, cultures that are, um, that are closer to getting to cultures of belonging where people do have psychological safety, and when they're not having to manage, as I did and have done through most of my career, my identities um, to make other people more comfortable.
1: Sure. And, you know, you said we're all diverse. And I think, and you sorry and you got an intersectionality, which is a hot button political term that the people who use it, I think on both sides of the arguments often don't really Get or they are using it intentionally on a narrow basis
0: because there's intersected identities and there's intersectionality. Intersectionality was a term that was created by Kimberly Crenshaw to identify and really call out the specific experiences of Black women and their intersected identities of Blackness and womanness. It has been appropriated by, as most things are, that started out with Black folks. Um, to um, mean lots of other different things. I only use intersectionality when I'm talking about the, the experiences of Black women. That is what Kimberly Crenshaw intended. Intersected identities speak specifically to the reality that all of us have different identities and that when you swap out one identity for another, um, so... If, if you look at women, for example, a white woman and a woman of color are going to have two markedly different experiences, right? Um, the intersection of those identities and the iteration of those identities are what, what lead to the experience. So I just wanted to make that point, um, because it has, that term is misused so, so often.
1: Well, that's interesting. I've not heard that. Um, so intersectionality as it was originally created, um, what is uh was cre- was originally used about specifically the intersection of being a woman and and being black and how those two things play out in and and people's experience right particularly as it relates and, to oppression
0: that that was the point right, okay. talking about the experiences of oppression
1: and so and then you don't like the term or or just prefer not to use the term intersectionality where it's the intersection of Other demographic, you know, uh, characteristics of a person, you know, sexual uh, uh, orientation or gender identity and, uh, you know, maybe their gender identity and uh, their race or cultural background or any of those. You, You prefer that just to talk about those things as where those two identities intersect, but not that term intersectionality.
0: Well, I, it's not that I don't like using the term. It's just that I try to honor the intent of Kimberly Crenshaw, the Black woman who came up with the term. It The term was designed to bring attention to the experiences of Black women. And even things like the Me Too movement that started out to bring attention to the experiences of Black women were then watered down. So... Um, again, it's not that I don't like using it. I just always point out the origins of it, and I prefer to use intersected identities.
1: Interesting. Okay, Fair enough. So but back to the we're all you say we're all diverse, and I think that's one of the challenges that critics of the EIB programs and proponents of the EIB programs, I think those are errors that they've made uh, by not recognizing that. Um, I think too often the very thing that back with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Civil Rights Movement and everything else, the whole, you know, and, you know, Martin Luther King's, uh, you know, judging a man by his character uh, and uh, recognizing that, Everybody's got different experiences and and we can't talk about somebody just because of a demographic characteristic as a monolith. Mm -hmm. That's what the old school stereotypical racist was doing about black people, but now some I, I feel like some proponents of DEIB want to talk about the experience as universal of of gay men or black women or whatever, and without recognizing that even in in those groups, mm-hmm. all these other things that they've had, all the other experiences they've had, like you say, intersect mm-hmm. uh, and and shape people differently. So we can't assume that because somebody is of this, you know, have this have this common group of characteristics that they're going to believe the same things, that they're going to expect the same things from society or from an employer or whatever, and. I think that's, I've you know seen corporate efforts that tend to assume that these groups are going to be the same, or but I've seen proponents or advocates on behalf of, you know purportedly on behalf behalf of those groups who talk about them sometimes monolithically, which I, I think is a, a mistake that a lot of folks are making you know have made uh, as well because you know it just invites. It in, invites in stereotypes if it's done, if it's done sloppily.
0: Well, well, the the sloppily and the and and it being reduced to those monoliths, quite frankly, is because the time, space, and place is not allocated to do deeper dives. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. that we're so interested in checking boxes and doing th- this work in a cursory fashion because we've not normalized the discomfort that comes from talking about this, that, you know, even an hour long one-time training is not going to enlighten you (laughs) to the point of, Oh, I get it now. That's it. It just took an hour, (laughs) you know, one time to fully understand it. Um, And, and so my approach I have found that a lot of times when I talk to organizations about doing this work well, I talk about the importance of time, talent, and treasure. It takes time to discuss. Notice the word that I used is discuss, that there have to be, there should be ideally facilitated opportunities to discuss these topics including opportunities for self-reflection and exploration of one's own identities, which quite frankly, a lot of white folks don't get an opportunity to do. Minoritized people are thinking about their identities all the time because we have to, you know, because the world makes us think about them all the time. Um, But people who have what I call the privilege of oblivion, it takes quite a bit of time to help people to understand how and why that privilege of oblivion has manifested for them. And, you know, I personally have decided to use race as a proxy for other identities because my logic is if you can talk about race, you can talk about anything. And it's the one thing nobody wants to talk about. Um, And so I think because people... Are Because a lot of these companies will either appoint a minoritized person to be in charge of DEIB, and they have zero knowledge or experience for doing it. But hey, you're black, brown, gay, disabled, pick a minoritized group. I I can't tell you how often I hear this. And of course it doesn't go well, because that's like asking someone who's not an accountant to come up with a financial strategy for a company. Um, So I I think all of that is to say that I think the work is misunderstood because most organizations are not giving themselves the amount of time, um, the expertise, and the resources to do this in a way that is substantive and meaningful because people don't want to be uncomfortable. Not to mention that the little bit of uncomfortability that may happen in having a facilitated conversation is nothing compared to the day to day uncomfortability that I've experienced since December 31st, 1974. You know, but people don't, you know, it's just too uncomfortable. So let's not do it. Or, you know, you're creating problems by talking about it. For whom? Maybe for you, because you don't have any problems. <laughs> but for the people for whom this work is about, If you created the space and place for them to share what their actual lived experiences are without retaliation, which again goes to time, talent and resources, then I think folks would have a better understanding of how comprehensive this work should be.
1: And for the end goal being, and this is golf, you know, gospel according to coffee stuff. But I, when, when I'm talking to employers, about all of, you know, employee selection and all their stuff, all of this DEIB stuff is really ultimately not the end. I mean, achieving diversity, achieving belonging are not the end goals. The end goal is still for the organization to execute its mission. DEIB, in my opinion, is the means, not the end. That's right. Uh, You know, so I can have, you know, diversity. I'm going – to recruit at a broader scale, I'm going to include in my recruiting efforts, organizations that I may not have tried to reach out to before, not because I want more brown noses in my organization, or that's a horrible way to say that, because I don't mean brown nosers, Um, I mean, but um, if I'm counting noses, (laughs) yeah, yeah, if I'm counting noses in organizations for statistics, like you said, checking boxes. I, I you know it's the goal is not to have more people like this. The goal is to to make sure I've got as rich and deep a talent pool as possible, and that I I don't I'm not so I'm recruiting more. I'm not improve, I'm not. I'm making sure that my selection processes do not uh, unnecessarily disqualify people. Who would otherwise be fully qualified, but either because of biases, or I mean, in the case of second chance employment, which is a, a big area that I'm I'm active in, um, eliminating people because of you know critical errors in judgment that they may have made in the past that aren't relevant to this job, and and there's no indication they present any current risk. All of those things. So I've got to you know I can I, I can select better employees or and or have a you know a more thorough. Uh, a deeper background, a group of people to, to choose from without letting biases. And then the belonging and the inclusion part to me seems like, okay, I've spent all the money and effort to get the right people with the right skills and abilities in these roles. Now, what do we do to make them feel at home so that the, they, they deliver every day, you know, what we're asking them to do to help execute the organization's mission? And part of that means... Us getting out of their own, out of our own way, as far as how do we, you know, where do we make it harder for them to do their job, and and how harder for them to succeed and to grow and be, become a contributor to the organization? Tell me where, where you, you know, feel free, uh, you know, to to tell me where I'm I'm off.
0: Not so much off. I, I think the missing step that I have observed frequently is when people. People always talk about recruitment. You know, you want to attract, but then you also want to retain. But have you asked the people that live there first what it's like for them?
1: Well, I think that yeah, that'd be a characteristic you'd have to, right, in order to know how to, you know, how to adjust your what your organization is doing.
0: But how many do? How many actually when they when they look at their demographics and they realize in most places in this country because we were built upon white supremacy and male patriarchy let's just keep it real that you're not going to have as many people of color and as many women um, the higher you go up the leadership ladder a system will do what it's designed to do right and that is the system of this country that we were born in that said you know there are many tools um I, I work from a um, within higher education, Uh, with Viewfinder Campus Climate Surveys, which is a wonderful tool to ask the people that live there already, what is your experience? And you can disaggregate such climate data by identities such as race and ethnicity, gender, um, sexual orientation. You can cross-tabulate such identities so that you're really getting the storytelling and the data about what people's lived experiences are. What I have found is that people either don't do that at all, um, that they just bring people into to what's potentially already a toxic environment for minoritized folks. And, and I'm using the word minoritized. I probably should should mention, I don't use the word minorities because you know, people of color are gonna be the majority in a couple of decades, but they will still be minoritized likely Because if we are not being intentional about these diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging efforts, organizations are still going to look white and male. I mean, they just are, um, because it doesn't happen by sprinkling magical fairy dust. So if you're going to assess, first assess, disaggregate the data by identity, and then do something (laughs) for the people that are already there. Because if they go to the trouble of providing the feedback, and I've been in many organizations where this has happened, and then nothing is done, um, you're going to recruit people who don't stay or who have a hard time once they get there because you've not done anything to prime the space for their arrival. And so I'm working with, I do a lot of work with STEM organizations and um, there are some groups that I am working with that want to recruit more from historically black colleges and universities. Yay. You know, because even many of the organizations that I've worked with never, ever, never, ever go to HBCUs ever. I had a colleague tell me um, that she even witnessed a situation where an HBCU grad Um, applied to their organization and the hiring manager threw the resume in the trash and said, why does that person who went there think they're good enough to work here? So there's the inherent racism that is associated with the existence of historically black colleges and universities. So of course you're not going to recruit from there if you think that they're substandard because it's black people there. Then you have to think about the fact that in these institutions, black people are allowed to be black out loud. You can be as authentic as you want to be because it is designed for you. It's one of the few places on the planet that is designed specifically for people of color. So if you're recruiting from there and here's a person who has been as part of their socialization has been told it is okay to be black out loud, but then they get to your company where that's probably not the case, particularly if you've had no discussions about identity at all about privilege, about culture ad versus culture fit, because if you're still operating Under the culture fit, we are finding someone who is a fit for our organization. Fit means like us. Mm -hmm. So if your organization is relatively homogenous, how well do you think someone who's different from that will fare brought into an organization with zero intentional efforts to prime the space to make it hospitable for them? I'll wait.
1: And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you don't absolutely love your current background and drug screening partner, maybe 2024 is the year to explore your options. If so, please reach out to us. We're here for you at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one full hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit GoodMorningHR.com and click on Research Credits. Then select Episode 130 and enter the keyword DEIB. That's D-E-I-B. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at ImperativeInfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Shani Delamore Barracks. No, yeah, I think you're totally right. I, I talk against the idea of fit. I mean, certainly there are behaviors that, uh, make people successful in certain roles, uh, and, and looking at those probably make definitely makes sense. Um, values or, you know, true organizational values that this is who we aspire to be as an organization and we want alignment there. Um, because you've got values in the organization, whether you've written them down or not, and and let's let's try to make them accurate and live up to them. Uh, those are value. Th- those, but culture fit to me has always been, well, this is somebody that it's like the you know, is this somebody I want to have a beer with? That test, which I think is a horrible test, but I I, I still on occasion hear managers uh, say things like that, uh, and I understand what their intent is, and it, I don't think it's malicious. But it's it's not gonna get them the best talent, um, yeah, you know, because unless drinking beer um, is part of the job description, it's probably not uh, you know really relevant to that role, but you know their their general thing is, well, we all get along here, and let's keep it that way. and And so totally, I. I I think, you know, I think you and I are on the same page there. It's the
0: path of least resistance, I think. And and I think because difference makes people uncomfortable, again it goes back to what I said earlier about normalizing discomfort. People want people like them because they don't have to do anything differently. You know, I've heard women say who kind of break that glass ceiling and they get into all male spaces where the men lament that they can't, you know, do their sexist stuff anymore. Like, you know, right. here comes this woman who's telling me that I can't that I can't do all of these things. And so people often don't want anyone breaking that circle because you're gonna have to do something differently. Which which kind of gets to, you know, the main question about where DEI should live. And, you know, you started talking about culture, organizational culture. And I, as a DEI practitioner, think about organizational culture as a function of values beliefs and norms and when we're talking about cultures of inclusion and cultures of belonging um, leadership should be leading the charge i think as to what kind of space do we want to create for our organization for people to be able to do their best work right And, you know, when you think about the essential question of where should diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging live, what I would say is who polices the police? So when you think about HR often being the enforcers of an organization, I have found...
1: Well, and I'll, I'll just say I advocate against that all the time. Yeah. Uh, that's I don't think that's HR's role. Just, just uh, for the record. But okay, go ahead. Yes,
0: but when you think about, you know, that's where you go for things like um, reporting harassment and discrimination. Um, and, and what I'll say is that in my professional experience, I have found that HR is often part of the problem and that unless diversity equity inclusion and belonging practitioners are deputized by leadership the CEO or otherwise to be able to move throughout freely throughout the organization to both assess and affect policies programs practices and people nothing's going to happen i mean i i just i haven't Observed a situation where I'll say this the best case situation I observed was where, again, um, DEIB was not within HR. And um, this was the situation actually at UNT, um, and our division no longer exists because Governor Abbott and others like him think that inclusion. Um, is a value or is not a value, Um, again, a system will do what it's designed to do. And when there were investigations where harassment and discrimination was discovered, the unit did not engage in sanctions, but what they would do, particularly for units where things were perpetual, and there was obviously a trend they would recommend that the unit, they would recommend the unit to us in diversity and inclusion to provide learning and development. And sometimes just having a conversation, opening the floor for what is happening and what is not, that is often the first step to improvement. But No one is valuing, again, the time, expertise, and resources to have these conversations, to explore difference um, in ways that are facilitated in mixed company. Um, There's a book that I'm reading now, um, The Business of Race. It's flipped but um but it's um by margaret greenberg and gina greenley how to create and sustain an anti-racist workplace and why it's actually good for business and they talk about how um workplaces still to this day are might be the only places where folks are in mixed cultural company
1: oh sure for sure
0: right and so if you're not having these conversations at work where are you gonna have them but most places are not valuing the time it takes to allow people to explore the ways that difference makes a difference. And if it, if it, is, if it lives within HR, then I feel like the work can be curtailed potentially. Um, I feel like it should be a function that reports directly to the CEO by virtue of a culture and inclusion office, for example. You know, there's some HR offices that are calling themselves people and culture, um, but someone needs to be able to work with HR to build their capacity for inclusion, which is very hard to do when you are part of HR, right? So... My point is that I think that DEI needs to be in its own entity. And I hate to use the word deputized, but that's that's the only word I feel like that makes sense because people won't engage unless they have to. And I feel like a CEO who starts with him or herself and then makes sure that their direct reports are getting the ongoing substantive. Learning and development and capacity building, so that it can trickle through the organization. Mm-hmm. And it's it's I'm also a um, Prosci certified change management practitioner, and I've always, always, always um, valued the intersection of change management and leadership and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the key tenets of change management is ADCAR, Awareness, Desire, Knowledge, Ability, and Reinforcement. Um, knowledge and ability, that's cultivated through learning and development. And through creating these places and spaces for people to be uncomfortable, where as soon as you're uncomfortable, you don't go run and tell someone, oh, you made me feel uncomfortable. I've seen that happen a lot too, where DEI efforts get shut down, Shut down, like what's happening at all Texas and Florida and other institutions, where my division doesn't exist anymore because the work made people uncomfortable. It made them question existing systems and structures. And then I even had a colleague tell me, to my face about the um, largely women of color in our unit, well, it can't be that hard if you're doing it. So why do we have to engage in your learning and development? It's So it's not valued because it's largely minoritized people doing it. And I've had that said to me to my face enough times where I realize that that is also why this work isn't valued. I mean, another example is uh, the phenomenon of racial battle fatigue which um, is uh, which was developed by Dr. William A. Smith, which is the aggregate effect of racism all day, every day on you, which I have. However, you will not find it in any DSM because it affects people of color, so no one cares. So it's those sorts of instances, I think, to me, that, that punctuate the point why if this is not deputized, it will go away as everyone hopes that it does. Not everyone, but as most people in positions of power um, who feel uncomfortable by these these discussions hope that it was. And they've won in some cases. Um, So now we're having more discussions about how do you still do the work in the face of uh, the work, in some cases, being criminalized. Um, so I feel like we're sort of back to 1960.
1: Well, so the none of that change is going to happen without leadership Correct. commitment at the very highest level. And, and I've seen organizations, I think episode 21, we had Dion Harrison on, and in addition to being a leader in, in product development for his financial services company, he he is their chief diversity officer, and they focus at, at at that corp at that company on financial services to underserved communities, and and designing those those uh, those services in a way that you know are meaningful for those folks that they want to use it, and um, and so for. For his organization, it's not a separate role apart from, uh, you know, the you know it's it's not an office that's separate from the rest. Yeah, he's got that responsibility and takes it seriously and works with their HR HR team. uh, Did
0: he come up through the ranks within the organization, or was hired to be? A7 no, product. he came
1: in. He came in through, uh, as I understand, he was he, product development is his primary job.
0: Okay, uh, not a practitioner so, by trade.
1: Not, not like what you, what you're talking about. And so he and and he works, but he works with uh, their HR team and the others, and they've incorporated, and seemingly legitimately, as best I can tell from what you know our conversations over the years have been, uh, I, I, you know. A culture that's that's leadership driven and supported that does you know is is geared to making sure that people have the opportunity to bring their best self to work every day and and to grow uh, regardless of um, you know who you know what their background is uh, you know the challenges they faced uh, you know outside of that office anyway. And and they seem to address the challenges, that, any challenges that arise inside the organization. And and so, uh, I think whether you've got an outside DEI consultant, or you've got that as an office in your organization, or it's it's geared, you know, it's it's incorporated through systems throughout the, throughout the organization. If the top level leadership isn't really committed to it. And, and that, you know, and that's those successive layers uh, of leadership aren't really committed. Nothing's going to happen. Oh, yeah.
0: And, And I think that commitment also has to be, when I talk about time, talent, and treasure, finding practitioners for whom this is what they do for a living, rather than necessarily trying to grow your own because I think while there is benefit of understanding where you live, right? And being of the organization, um, this is a practice. It's a professional practice, just like anything else. And as someone who's done this work for decades, I find it offensive that people are just plucked out and said, hey, you're a minoritized person, go do.
1: And I think maybe in some cases that minimizes that individual's unique skills and abilities to say that they were plucked out. <laughs> because I mean, I, I, I don't ever judge anybody to say that they got this role because they happen to be black, female, gay, whatever whatever the uh, the demographic is.
0: But if we're honest, if we're honest... How many people do you know that were plucked from within the organization to do this work that are not members of minoritized groups and mm. that have zero experience doing this work? I mean, even DEI committees that have zero training. They're just an assortment of people who, you know, one of my the things I like to say is, you know, add some proficiency to your, to your passion. Passion does not does not mean proficiency just because, and that's with anything. I may be passionate about money, but that doesn't mean that I'm passionate enough to be a CFO, (laughs) right? right. Um, And I think that is the fundamental challenge is that this work is not seen as a professional practice. It's seen as an add-on. It's seen as a do this on top of some other role. You know, so I would respectfully submit that if this person's role is product development and the fact that it's and in addition to something else, like what meaningful role gets combined with something else?
1: Well, I, I think it's it's a part of the role. And, and I think whether it's the HR piece or the it's a leadership it's part of the leadership role to create that environment now now having the the skill set and the knowledge to identify the the shortcomings and the deficits in the organization uh to know the you know, the scholarly work that's been done to measure how we measure this, how we implement this, what the impact, you know, may be of, of making, you know, this change or that change. I think that's all relevant. I wonder if putting, whereas the if the, if the entire rest of the organization is focused on executing the mission of the organization, and that's whether it's a for-profit company making money, uh, or it's a nonprofit and it's delivering service to the community of some sort. Um, I wonder if having that separate silo for DEIB that's just focused on DEIB can get too focused on that rather than saying how is, and, and telling the story about how this effort helps us execute the mission, which is the paramount piece.
0: Be the goal. I mean, anytime Hmm. I work with an organization, the first thing I do is ask for their strategic plan, you know, get an understanding of their strategic operations, strategic goals. DEIB is always applicable to that, always. So when it lives in the right place, um, and, and, you know, and I've found as a consultant, because I'm often brought in by leadership who can. "Quote unquote," deputize the work and say, mm-hmm. "This is important. We are doing this." Then it actually gets done. Um, right. But but I but I feel like, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with you that it comes down to leadership. My my approach I feel like is that leadership. Anytime I work with an organization, I actually disaggregate leadership from everybody else. Um, and that the conversations we have and the work that we do is markedly different from everyone else in the organization, because this is the group with the most positional power, the most relative positional power. And so those conversations, particularly as it relates to change management, because I mean, a key change management principle is how you're engaging your leaders and what I what I'm loving seeing lately is that folks are now realizing that you have to have DEI efforts that are specific to leadership. You know that what you do for leadership and what you do for everyone else should be different because they're speaking two different languages. They have different focuses of the organization. And, and another thing that I've seen as a pitfall is when you have one leader, say it's the CEO, that's very much on board. And that's the only person that you hear from, that if you've not done the work to cultivate your other senior leaders, people kind of suss out that this is just the CEOs, you know, they might approve of it um, and support it. But without engaging that leadership, it often doesn't trickle down through values, beliefs and norms. And and so I, I just... I feel like because DEIB is a relatively new um, practice, professional practice, and the fact that it can be so easily gutted due to fragility, um, to me punctuates the point that it needs to be in a place and space within the organization that is akin to culture development and um, where there can also be some accountability. This work often lacks accountability um, and the accountability needs to look differently for leadership vis-a-vis everyone else.
1: Well, and we've seen accountability be done wrong too, right? I mean, we just saw Arvind Krishna at IBM kind of, you know, be embarrassed uh, by Basically, in a Zoom meeting setting, setting saying that managers who don't meet diversity goals, uh, you know, which sounds like a quota system, the way he laid it out, uh, are going to have, you know, are not going to get bonuses or maybe even lose their roles. Yeah, I don't. Um, I, I, I don't. Yeah, and I, well, and it's just, it's. I mean, that's been illegal since Title. So, I mean, that's nothing new. You know, that's that's blatantly not. And it may well not have been his intent, but it certainly to drive home effect, he certainly gave that that, that appearance. And that that doesn't accomplish anything because now we're back to counting noses yeah, exactly. and that's not the way to, to attract the kind, you know, that's not gonna attract your best talent. Uh, and it's not, you know, it's But the question it, is, does that CEO waste?
0: value the work enough to prime the space by um, allocating the time? And, and I keep going to time. This work takes time. Talking about it takes time. You have to talk about it more than once. (laughs) It has to be an ongoing discussion that is aligned with the strategic goals of an organization. And and I think folks are afraid to say, to me, what would be more effective than that is is to announce an effort that, Management, you know, for the next couple of years, um, management and leadership are going to engage in some very intentional learning and development and capacity building about creating a culture of belonging. Then it makes sense to say, okay, now you have the tools, the perspective to understand the how and why of why difference makes a difference. Um, they they understand the, the role of their sphere of influence in creating cultures of inclusion. So then you can trickle it down to the rest of the employees. Because again, Change Management 101, if you don't effectively engage your leadership, it's not going to permeate out. So, but I think, no, people, because this work is often hard to quantify, think that it might be a waste of time and it's not going to make them any money. Mm -hmm. But I think the more you understand the work, which again, why awareness is step one in um, change management without a full understanding of the work, how do you really know what you're doing and why you're doing it? And it's those leaders that, that is the one thing I will say. It's those leaders that understand this work takes time and that you expect people to feel uncomfortable and your discomfort should be a badge of honor, meaning that you're growing rather than running to tell on somebody that, Oh, this person made me feel uncomfortable. Let's get them fired. Which I've seen happen a lot with DEI. Yeah.
1: And on the other side, we've seen you know, at least media accounts of DEI practices where, Um, people were intentionally, you know, where they segregated employees by race into different rooms or, you know, just dumb things that don't make anybody, don't make anybody feel, you know, and I think that's part of the public, you know, some public support for, and you mentioned here in Texas, uh, you know, for, uh, uh, opposing DEI type offices and, 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 direct efforts is because, and this goes back to your argument for people who are proficient in the, in the actual practice of doing this. Well, not going at it with, uh, you know, a personalized agenda just to, you know, state, you know, their, uh, you know, their grievances to, a, uh, you know, to a workforce, uh, yeah. of, that's not going to help. Um, you know, you're not gonna you're not going to make change by making people feel bad intent, you know, or telling people they're bad people. You're gonna make change by by making the business case for why we need this skill set. Well, why we need, uh, not to keep, you know, recruiting and promoting and incentivizing the same way we always have, uh, and, and by having a workplace where people feel, um, valued and appreciated and where they can come do their best work every day. I want to make point
0: that you said, though, about the business yeah. case. Yeah. Um, millennials and younger do not want to hear about the business case. That whole notion of the business case was designed to sell it to white men that were resistant.
1: Well, but that's the only reason to do it, though, right? The only reason to do it is we've got a deficiency here that's slowing down the organization's progress overall. Uh, yes. And, and I
0: think, but I think for those people that you're trying to attract, and and there's there's I should have should have had the research with me, um, but they've looked demographically at generational bands. Younger generations don't want to hear the business case, particularly if you're trying to recruit huh. those younger generations. They want to hear how they're valued.
1: Right and how oh I, I totally agree
0: developed well, and how they're so I, I just right. I, I share that particularly because people are starting to do the eye rolls at mention of the business case because again it's intellectualizing it rather than creating more spaces and places to understand the human next to you mm-hmm. you know it's it's this work is is about humans. Um, and yes, you know, one of the reasons I don't like the term human capital is because it's referring to people as property and as a black American, you know, it, it, I shudder every time I hear human capital because I mean I was capital when I was in shackles. Right. Um, but I feel like if, if we can begin to understand this, and again, this is the awareness part of what it is and what it isn't, this is about people's personhood, just affirming people's basic humanity and personhood. But the people who are in positions of power have to relinquish that power a little bit to just be uncomfortable long enough to understand and listen to other people's lived experiences and how they may be contributing to those negative lived experiences. But you said something earlier about segregating people. The reason there are employee resource groups is because that's often the only place minoritized people feel safe. I mean, many, many, many folks, and I've experienced this at a couple of different places that I work and I'm just speaking from the eye perspective as a black person who feel like they can't aggregate, they can't congregate because if there are too many black people all together, then people will think that there's something happening. And I've had people say to me that, you know, they'll have white folks in their organization go, Oh, are y'all plotting something like legit? You know, I remember being in a similar situation, a uh, program that we had, that was designed to build bonding capital among folks of color, the glares that we got. There was one person that kept walking back and forth to try to figure out, I guess, to figure out what it was we were doing. You know, the fact that you can't even congregate without people thinking you're plotting something, that is why the the self-segregation that bonding capital is important. But again, I go back to awareness. If nothing is being done to help folks understand why that's necessary, why people feel like they need to have that safe space, because open spaces are not safe. You know, I was one of those women of color who loved, I, I hate that COVID happened, but when we all, you know, started working from home, that was the first time I ever felt safe cuz i was in my own house and didn't have to deal with the micro the day to day to day to day, day microaggressions and constant suspicion that you get from just being a person of color out in the open you know so so it's i think people who have the privilege of oblivion have no understanding or awareness of what the lib, the the actual lived experiences are of people who are minoritized and how difficult it is just to be a person who was the other every day. It's But if you're not creating spaces to be able to talk about that without retaliation, and that's the main thing. Most folks I've heard, I've spoke to have said, well, I mean, I'm not going to say anything because then I'm just going to have a target on my back and they're not going to do anything. So I just keep my head down and, you know, hope I don't die. Because again, racial battle fatigue comes with, the um, the the physiological symptoms that come with having to be oppressed um, in organizations every day.
1: We could go another hour on this, but we are at the hour mark. Which I've, you've, I've taken a lot more of your time than than we scheduled, but I I so appreciate your your you sharing and and uh, and giving me the time today, Shani.
0: Thank you. Thanks for letting me you know talk. <laughs> No, Lots to talk about it. with this and, topic, so thanks for having me. And
1: we'll, and and I think we'll do it some more. So thanks again for for being here. Thanks, and thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at GoodMorningHR.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our. Hold on two seconds. Oh, there's I'm your gonna...
0: cat. I should have let my, my cat. cat.
1: Yeah. <laughs> My cat broke in. So Rob Arpchurch is our technical producer and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.